What an amazing time to be alive. What an amazing time to be watching the news and having conversations about the news and consuming all kinds of bits and pieces and opinions from hither and thither, like a little bower bird pecking around the internet and social media, trying to figure out what's true and what's not. But also, what an amazing time to be susceptible and vulnerable to stridency, to misinformation, to whataboutism to people trying to distract us from what really matters, jangling keys in front of our face in order to get us to look over here instead of remaining stable and calm and even-keeled about our own opinions, our own vision of the truth. Now is a moment to reach across aisles, to set aside differences, to have faith in democracy, to have faith in bigger ambitions and bigger things to believe in than just the day-to-day. The only way we can do that is by having conversations that resonate with all of us, conversations that make sense to all of us, conversations that are difficult, conversations that are important, conversations that are, as always, a little bit uncomfortable. Today on the show, one of the most popular podcasters in the United States of America. He's the host of the longest-running daily news analysis podcast. It's called The Gist, a half hour a day, uh, every day. It's a lot of work, a lot of work, i got to tell you. I do this thing uh, once a week, already feels like a lot. He did the show, he did 1,400 episodes for Slate of The Gist for seven years. Uh, it's had uh, about 100 million lifetime downloads apparently 20 million of those were in 2020 until a year ago in 2021 he was fired not fired claims not to be fired not exactly fired a conscious decoupling perhaps uh they parted ways there had been a seven month long investigation by slate into his conduct as a white man talking with colleagues about race And when Mike Pesca was forced to leave Slate, it was something of a bombshell in, I was going to say the national media, but I would say even the international media, because it was almost like a final nail in the coffin of any hope that the kind of racial reckoning of 2020 and 2021 would end with cooler heads prevailing. It was a moment at which everybody realized there was an orthodoxy, and that orthodoxy has to be upheld. It's a minority orthodoxy held by largely white, educated university elites who feel like they're doing the right thing by being patronizing towards people of color, by mollycoddling them and protecting them, and that anyone in their midst who suggests that we have open or frank dialogue about sensitive issues is not only to be discouraged, but to be fired. Not fired, consciously decoupled. Mike goes into this, and he has a uh, an extraordinarily magnanimous attitude towards the whole thing in light of what went down. Uh, if you would like to hear Mike's show, it has been resurrected. He jokingly calls this the second season of The Gist, the first season having been seven years long. Uh, now he does it for himself. Slate have allowed him to go off and uh, and rebirth it. So I hope you enjoy this conversation uh, with the one and only Mike Pesca of the fabulous podcast, The Gist. 
my question, Josh. How, and please speak for all of Australia, the continent, the people, <laughs> everything, the, the uh, fauna. How do Australians feel and think about how their country, Australia, has dealt with the pandemic? Uh, I will probably get into a lot of trouble because the people who agitate on the fringes are very, very noisy. But uh, if you look at polling, Australians are extremely proud of what Australia has achieved. Uh, in terms of the mortality, as a proportion of the population, I think the mortality is about 97% less than the United States and the UK uh, were. The uh, the ability to sort of, you know, continue to flatten the curve and continue to use aggressive contact tracing and uh, and sort of isolation to to nip in the bud any eruptions of coronavirus. Because I think there's a misconception maybe overseas in some places that Australia was completely quarantined and none of the virus never got in. It was quarantined and you had to spend two weeks in a in a quarantine hotel up until the 1st of November last year, if you wanted to come into the country. Uh, but nonetheless, it escaped from the quarantine hotels a number of times, and there were breakouts all over the place. And various states handled that in various with various degrees of, quote-unquote, rampant authoritarianism, as the, uh, the alt-right <laughs> American uh, keyboard warriors might call it, um, in certain states. So I think it's important to understand that this was very, very, very much a state-by-state -state thing. Western Australia, which is the basically the entire western half of the continent, uh, is still closed, even to other Australians. You can't go in, and if you do go in, then you have to, you have to, you will be incarcerated in a quarantine hotel, and that is only going to be phased out in coming months. Victoria, which is the state where Melbourne is, took a, a very strong police-heavy. Uh, attitude, imposing nightly curfews and so on for very long lockdowns, I think the longest lockdown in the world. But perhaps I'm some, somewhat, and the, the weird thing is I was going to say perhaps I'm somewhat biased because I'm from Sydney, which is the largest city in the most populous state, which took a more, what Americans might think of as a, a more hands-off-y kind of attitude, a more, a little bit, just 1% towards the Florida, Texas model versus the New York, California model. But I don't think that it's that, that I am biased because opinion polls in Victoria and Western Australia are also wildly supportive of those governments. Now, you could say that people have a kind of a Stockholm syndrome and that they don't know what they don't know. And But the reality is, in places where there's never been a major COVID outbreak like Western Australia, they've basically been living as if the pandemic never happened. They haven't had hospitalizations to speak of. They haven't had masking to speak of. They haven't had school closures to speak of. And so the Australian population is generally like... Yeah, you're going to, at the very, very, very fringes, there are going to be cases in which people who are agitating for an extremely libertarian vision of individual rights find themselves in situations where the police are kind of forced to enforce silly rules or arbitrary rules or rules that seem capricious. That's always going to be the case with police interactions with the public. And it's certainly going to be the case during public health emergencies where dire laws need to be enacted for a short term period. But you know, now that we wander out of it and international tourists are allowed back in Australia now, we can travel, we can come back. Well, you have to be vaccinated to come into the country, but uh, that's the sort of the last barrier to, to fall. The sense in Australia is uh, good on us. Uh, we did a good job. Josh Zepps, journalist, Australian, and specifically New South Welshman. Thank you, Josh. <laughs> You're welcome, Mike. That is the <clears throat> demonym. Now you can hear I'm just getting covered because I'm... <laughs> that is, yes, New South Welshman. 
Yeah. You're a New South Welshman. I always wondered about, maybe this could be my second question. <laughs> Wouldn't just New Wales or South Wales have sufficed? Why New South Wales? I've always wondered, Mike, whether or not, does this mean, did, did the did the British, when they named it, did they think that it looked like South Wales? <laughs> or were they saying that it looked like Wales and it's in the south of the world? Oh, the south of Wales. <laughs> Is that true? <laughs> the you know what I mean? Like, of a well. No, what? yeah. It seems <laughs> no, like no, I'm, I'm serious. But like, yes, exactly. Why are they being so... Are they? Is South Wales so specific and so noticeably different from North Wales that they were like, oh, you know what this is? This is New South Wales, not New East Wales. Right. Or were they saying, uh, this is New Wales, uh, very much in the south of the planet. We'll call it New Southerly version of Wales. I don't yeah, know. It, it's a great question. If the same, if the same naming is it a great question? Well, if the same naming conventions had taken place, I'd be living in New West York or West New yes. York. Yes. Yeah. That's right. That's right. New West Amsterdam. I like <laughs> to right. still call it New Amsterdam. I'm old timey like that. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, let's talk about, you know, what I want to start by talking about is election night 2016, uh, oddly enough, let's because <clears throat> uh, my producer of my last podcast, We The People Live, and I were, I was still living in New York at the time. And uh, I came out to the podcast that you were doing in Brooklyn, oh, oh, oh. which was this live Lollapalooza, you might say, mm -hmm. election night, Hillary Clinton, a shoe-in. All the polls said it. This crazy Republican Party, so foolish for having elected an unelected, an unelectable candidate. And at some point, about halfway through the night, uh, Grant, my producer, and I just sort of looked at each other and... He said, should we just go back to my place and get stoned? I was like, mm, well, pro probably better than standing here and watching Mike Pesca try to salvage this thing. What were your emotions? Uh, it was flop sweat on the inside, but I've been complimented by my sang froid on the outside. I just uh, power, put my head down, powered on, and tweaked the segments like, is conservatism dead from now on? Actually, that would have been a good discussion because as much as we thought Donald Trump's uh, victory was a triumph of republicanism slash conservatism, I think conservatism was dead. It was, it was, of course, shocking. It was very odd to be on a public stage and trying to keep it up, keep up the idea of performing. Uh, I think that the next time I meet Stephen Colbert, who is doing a live special that night, we'll have something to bond over, the people who are actually performing yeah. based on the premise that the world has been remade and Hillary Clinton will now be president and then you have an entirely different show. It's really as if they've changed the genre on you um, from one minute to the next. And I was, I was both a counselor, a consigliere, a priest, a, uh, I was just performing, performing a lot of services for that mm. audience as they were trying to process it. What I was surprised by watching Colbert once we got back to Grant's place was that they? It didn't seem like the writers had really even bothered to <laughs> to cover this this option. I don't know how you ended up handling it because uh, I bailed on your show. My apologies, but like Colbert, they they sort of just kept trying to roughly do the same things that they'd done, and there was no there was no sophisticated way of carrying the heft of what people felt like was happening. Like we didn't know at the time whether or not this would be. A derailing of American democracy altogether. Like, I mean, I remember Andrew Sullivan writing an article saying, you know, this is the end of the American experiment, like mm. as if this is like literally the end of America. It was sort of like, I don't know, the aftermath of 9-11 or something where you like, you, like with the benefit of hindsight, we, we are now able to put it into a historical context that isn't cataclysmic. But at the time, 
you just don't know what you're what you're in for. And Colbert just wasn't really able to to channel any of that. He seemed like he was flailing around like a flopping fish. Well, but he I'm had sure a lot you of. Would. No, he had a lot of comedy set pieces that there was no bailing out of, whereas I had a lot of panel discussions. So even if the panel discussion was titled something like What Happens to Republicans Now or Will Women Ever Recover? I don't know. Maybe before it wasn't titled Will Women Ever Recover? But then we titled, <laughs> then we titled it that. Also, mm. didn't Andrew Sullivan have the uh, cover piece, I think, in The Atlantic showing Barack Obama's face saying, now from this point forward with this man as the representative of America, we will have only... Um, open arms on the international stage. That's how international Barack Obama is. I don't know. Maybe these grand pronouncements about how the person of the president will change everything. <laughs> we should put the pump the brakes on. Mm, yes, I think that's probably wise. Yeah, there was. I think they probably ran. Like I just imagine all the scrambling behind the scenes to change the front pages of the papers that they'd expected to be a Hillary Clinton win with titles like "Will there ever be a male president again?" And things like that. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and let's talk in the in approximate sense about your past couple of years. When when uh, when did you leave uh, Slate with the gist? Um, I started the gist in 2014, and the anniversary of my last show was um, a couple days ago from oh. the, from the time we're talking now. Happy. Uh, Happy anniversary. <laughs> yeah, I think it's I think it's like uh, the Louis C.K. bit about when people are divorced. Don't say I'm sorry. Say congratulations. Um, yeah. Right. yeah. <laughs> uh, now, I'm free, now I'm free to be the kind of guy who quotes Louis C.K. without a hundred disclaimers. That is what my freedom bought me, I guess. That must be refreshing. Hey, <laughs> just having to – all of the throat clearing that has to be done, it's, it's – uh, it, mm. we're going to get to – I want to get – I'm just going to make you explain what happened because it's such an interesting story and we can't expect that all of my listeners have necessarily heard you on Jesse Singles podcast or something uh, or are following the nuances of cancel culture in the United States that well. Uh, but it is it is amazing to me that we've become used to the sort of tax that the throat clearing requires. It's just a tax on our attention and time. Like I tweeted the other day, there was a some journalist asked the Australian Prime Minister what the price of bread and milk is because yes. there's an upcoming federal election here. I'm sure this is a thing that lazy American journalists to, do too. And like I tweeted. What is what is it with journalists and that question? Like, if uh, if you're not poor, then you're not paying attention. Then you're buying bread and milk without paying attention to the price because they just go in your shopping cart, and really you're not thinking about it because like you just need those things. I mean, if you, there are there are things like steak, for example, that you might be right. price sensitive to, but you're not price sensitive to bread and milk. You just you're just buying them. Does a journalist think that some viewers or listeners are under the impression that the prime minister is a poor man that who goes shopping and like, <laughs> do they think that this question is going to like disabuse us of the, of the presumption that, that countries are run by very poor people on the breadline? It's so this anyway. is a great, this is a great point. There are elastic goods and inelastic goods, and it doesn't right. make much sense to ask about an inelastic good. There exactly. is no real substitute for bread. There is, I suppose, some substitutes for milk. The gluten people and the oat people would tell you otherwise. But yes, you should say, you know, what is the, I guess the gallon of gas question becomes a little more salient, but that's an easy one. They're on gigantic that's signs. Easy. Exactly. On that's corner. the only yeah. reason why that's a good one, because it's, it's right, you know, you'd have to be an idiot not to know. But uh, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, lamb chops or something like that, or you know, what's something the that's what's <laughs> right. of a lamb chop. What about, Here how in Australia, mac, we eat a mac lot and more cheese lamb. bites before. Yeah, you know, sure. Just to show you're a man of the people. Exactly. Jalapeno poppers, sir. Good. Yeah. Good. Have you no shame? You have <laughs> no idea of the price of the TGI Friday menu, sir. That would be the American version. Yes, yes. In Australia, it would be a you know a quinoa bowl with an almond latte, but in America, it would be a jumbo <laughs> lard bucket of KFC. <laughs> Uh, but so anyway, I tweet this out, uh, you know, and of course, I mean, I, you can tell me what the reaction, you tell me what you think a, a sort of bad faith reaction to such a tweet might be. Well, assailing you for not caring that some people are poor and need to right. know this. Uh, you're right. so privileged to right. assume right. that it, blah, 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 right. blah, And, it's, it, and <laughs> the thing is, it's so obvious, you don't even, it didn't even take you one second to, to right. know what the bad faith retort would be. Uh, you know, how, you know, you have no compassion for poor people, your privilege is showing, you know, this is so uh, out of touch, this is so elitist and so on. So the fact that I get thousands of, like, hate tweets back because someone you know retweets it with a comment about like you know is this a joke that how dare you 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 think that people shouldn't care about price inflation you think that leaders shouldn't care about the inflation of fresh produce (laughs) like no that's not what i said i'm not saying that so now in order to tweet that you're sort of required to do three preemptive throat clearing tweets which say Now, I understand that many people are doing it harder than me, and I come from a position of great privilege, and I have the good fortune to not be below the poverty line. Uh, Nonetheless, when journalists ask this question, blah, 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 fuck, everything's going to become pretty anodyne if everything we say has to be prefaced with like a 45-second written disclaimer like we're in some Stalinist show trial. And maybe that's the point. You know, it gets me to thinking, well, first of all, perhaps this is why Twitter expanded from 140 to 280 characters, just to get in the 140 <laughs> characters of throat clearing. Second of all, maybe if you want to have a really punchy podcast, you have the main feed, which is what you want to say, and then a sub feed or a different feed. This is all the throat clearing. If you really need that, this is all the throat clearing about the stuff I did say. It's no, called it the, to, the To Be Sure cast. Yeah, right. But maybe, <laughs> but maybe the point is, and even if it's not consciously the point, this is what it becomes to just force everyone into that crouched corner of to be sure so as not to offend. Now I need to make clear and you're so boring and you can't make an interesting point that you never do make the interesting point or it's not worth it to make the interesting point. And then the people who just need you to know that you're so privileged it's not to have um, a, a, a sensitivity to the price changes of milk on a microscopic level those people win (laughs) yeah it's almost like uh you know here's a crazy idea maybe we could just extend a principle of charity to each other and start with a baseline assumption that the the your interlocutor is not an asshole you know what i mean whenever i deal with whenever i deal with people in real life that seems to be the assumption and it's not just because i'm dealing with the same people but of course you know online this is not the case and it's even happening in radio. I was there was a a fatal, a horribly brutal fatal shark attack in Sydney last week, and uh, you know we, I was doing a segment about how you can with a psychologist about how you, how you might be able to uh, help yourself pivot your brain away from sort of gruesome, fearful images because you don't want them to loom too large in in your mind, and how you can use your rational brain to sort of use the statistical unlikelihood of either dying in a plane crash or, you know, a shark attack or something like that to override your lizard animal emo- uh, fear and emotions. And the psychologist spends the first 
three or four minutes of the interview of like an eight minute interview talking about how uh, you know first of all we should extend our uh, you know sympathies to the family of the uh, the victim uh you know it's a terrible thing that happened and you know we want to make sure that uh, you know they're getting all the support that they yeah i know i'm not a fucking asshole like let's can we just take all of that as a given i don't yeah we know it, it was bad we know we know that being having your limbs ripped off by a vicious sea beast is a bad thing so can we all just park that for a moment can we talk about something more interesting Yes, you are a psychologist, sir. You are not a <laughs> liminologist who will tell me if it's better or worse not to have your limbs assumed, stipulated, stipulated, yes. assumed facts and evidence. Absolutely. Yes. Or I remember one time when I was working for NPR, we would get, you know, some some angry letters and there was a shooting at I don't I think it was the Holocaust Museum and in a 20-second newscast item, the 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 important news was that the murderer or would-be murderer, I think it might have been a murderer, was sentenced to however much time he was sentenced to in jail. So it went like this. Uh, the shooting at the Holocaust Museum, which claimed the life of a 78-year-old security guard, uh, Josh Zepps, you know what, I'm not going to use that name, Zoss Zepps <laughs> was sentenced to 20 years in prison. Fine, we got the understanding. Letters saying, how dare you not mention the name of the guard? How could you mention the shooter and not the name of the guard? And then the ombudsman weighs in, yes, you must, of course, mention the name. How could you erase the guard? Because we have 20 seconds. <laughs> and of the 4 million people listening, all but seven members of the guard's family, if they care at all, only care about the salient news <laughs> that the guy was sentenced to jail. Yeah. Plus, you know, I'm sure the guard did a lot for his community. If you mention his name, how could you not mention that? And I'm mm. sure he, you know, would work as a hobby we just have there's a limited amount of time in our yes. in our days in mind yes. yes can we take things as a given people uh and one thing we should take as a as a given that is uh, might be that people are allowed to have opinions about the kinds of words that uh, that we say in in uh, in in modern culture without being fired mike uh so will you uh, take that beautiful segue that i just handed you on a silver platter and uh, tell the folks uh, a little bit about your departure from uh slate Sure. I was engaged in a uh, Slack discussion about another journalist who works at Slack the Slack is Times. a, for non-techie heads, the Slack is a little chatty chat thing that you do at work uh, where everybody's all chatting with each other, like a sort of a yeah. group messenger. Right. It takes the glories of Twitter and brings it to the workplace. It, <laughs> there, are, there are a lot of efficiencies with Slack, but if left unchecked, you also do get a lot of the pylons and group thinks. And it, it allows uh, the users of Slack, maybe all the members of a workplace, to break off into little groups where they could talk with each other. The whole idea is to have an analog to the water cooler. And I guess people do gossip in the office. So why not let them gossip on Slack? Well, anyway, um, we have Slack channels at Slate, and some of these channels are let us talk about the news of the day, let us talk about, there are some, you know, channels for when we were all in the office, what are some local restaurants that we like to go to, but there was a big channel that a lot of people liked to, uh, like to visit called Industry News, and it was what was going on in media news, and at the time, and this was about a year ago, a little more than a year ago. There was a story of Donald McNeil, who was the science reporter for the New York Times, for my money, the best reporter covering the pandemic uh, that I was aware of, at least in the early stages. And there was a kerfuffle within the Times because a couple years earlier, he had gone on a New York Times sponsored trip where in talking to a high school student, he actually uttered 
what what we will call euphemistically the N-word. And the reason he uttered it was to get clarity. She was telling him a story or maybe the group a story about a suspension in her school about the N-word. And he wanted to know, when you say about the N-word, do you mean the euphemism? Do you mean the actual word? So to cut through a little bit like what we were talking about, the maybe minute of throat clearing it would take to get there, he just said, do you mean the word or do you mean, and then he said the actual word. A couple years later, I guess it came to light a couple years later, um, people at the Times were upset that he was not, in their mind, sufficiently disciplined for this. Uh, that story got out and other people in the media began opining about uh, if he should be disciplined for that or not. And then that opining came to Slate where I was, whereas the majority of most of the people having this discussion were something along the lines of he should have been fired. And I disagreed. Now. We could stop the story right here and say, just because I disagree, does it mean I should be involved in the discussion? Was it wise to be involved in the discussion at that point? History would say no. Was it uh, an ethically good thing or bad thing to be involved in the discussion? I'll just explain what my thinking is, which is when Slack was presented to us, it was, as I said, this, this substitute for the water cooler. And at a place at an opinion magazine, it was always sold to us that you know, a great benefit of working in a place where people have opinions is that you could share your opinions with others. You could refine the opinions that you might wish to pursue on the pages of Slate. You sharpen your opinions. They get better this way. And so, and it wasn't an abstract idea that Slack is a place to trade opinions. I could recount six, uh, maybe four or five times where I had a differing opinion from most people at Slate. I said so in a Slack channel. The editors of Slate would say, what an interesting opinion, or please pursue that on the pages of our magazine. And so we did. And so I wrote an article about why Mayor Bloomberg had the best credentials other than Joe Biden of those in the race. Not an endorsement, just talking about credentials. I wrote an article about why um, AOC and others were wrong to chase Amazon from New York State and Queens as their potential headquarters. This was more than a minority opinion with its slate. I would think I was the only one who thought that, but they thought a, an interesting discussion had come from the idea that I disagreed with uh, my slate colleagues. And so in the same vein, I disagreed with my slate colleagues saying perhaps the discipline, if there was to be discipline in the case of McNeil, should not have amounted to a firing. And from that opinion... Um, I no longer work at Slate. Was there an opinion expressed by you about whether or not it should be okay for white people to use the N-word and actually say the word when we're talking in conversation about the appropriate use of the word? Well, I got into... They, the, you know, someone in the channel said, you know, explain your thinking, if you will. And I put into the channel, um, well, not only the idea of proportionality. Uh, I think, you know, I'm trying to remember this from a year or so ago. I think I said that this is not nothing. The, his bosses should have, of course, you know, ha given him a talking to. But I put into the channel um, an article by John McWater, who I chose for a couple specific reasons. So if your listeners, I don't know, maybe they know who John is, but he's Probably a half, linguist. Half, I'd say. Yeah, he's a linguist. He teaches at Columbia. Very much to the point of why I did it. It's he was a long time not official employee, but he had a show on Slate. He had a show called Lexicon Valley where he talked about uh, language issues. He he is black. That um, you know, to many, gives him standing to upon on this more than a white person would. And he wrote about then, and he's since written uh, about again the use mentioned distinction that using the word as a slur is far different from mentioning it. And he talked about how for most of you know. The 
our recent history, there was an acceptability to utter a slur or write a slur if the intention was, and what you're communicating to the audience, um, something about how this slur was used in a in in an actual real world situation or to write a, I suppose to write about the slur in, you know, an academic context, certainly a quote. So I put that in the Slack channel as the use mentioned distinction seems to have played a part in what they are saying that Donald McNeil said, you know, none of what I said, I didn't, I didn't dig in. I couldn't have been a couple things to note. I of course never used the word in the Slack discussion. I furthermore didn't use, as I have with you, the N word. I didn't use that phrase because I've heard that phrase could be upsetting. And in fact, since then, there've been a couple of stories out of America where, for instance, a college professor in Illinois, um, uh, a law school professor wrote uh, on a blackboard, I think, or maybe on a handout, um, B dot 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 for uh, an anti-woman slur that's the name of a female dog, and N dot 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 as slurs that an employee of a company uh, had directed at her. And it was a a hypothetical about a a situation where someone would sue for um, being discriminated against. Anyway, that professor got in a lot of trouble, hasn't taught since after writing N dot dot dot, Jesse Jackson protested at the school calling for his firing. So even writing the word in a- Wait, saying that he should have written the whole word out or saying that he no. should not even have had a conversation about the existence of the word? The argument is that for the students taking the test, they don't need to be, and this is just the, this is the argument that the members of the Black Student Union put forward. They don't need to be confronted with the uh, ugly legacy of racism it's uh, enough that they go through, you know, law school and have the struggles that they have. They don't need to confront it on a test. It's not necessary. And they accused him of insensitivity and in creating an unsafe environment. And the school right. ordered the school ordered a raft of uh, trainings. Jesse Jackson got involved. But I only mention this to say, I, of course, never use the word. I, of course, never use the shortened version of the word. I mean, you don't even need to say, of course. I don't think that that's necessarily like... When you say that Donald McNeil should have been, is that his name, McNeil? It is, yeah. That that, that he should have, that of course he should have been, uh, you know, punished in some way, but maybe short of firing. I'm not sure that it was clear at the time, if it was a couple of years before a year ago that this happened. I'm not entirely sure that everybody understood in 2018 or 2019 that we all agreed on the taboo of never even being able to utter the mouth sounds of that word, even when you're referring to that word. I mean, I think right. that's a reasonably new thing. So it's like, it's a bit like the, the Joe Rogan mashup of him saying the word in the past and people saying like, you know, it's the 21st century. Everybody knows that you can't utter that word. No, for a start, or even now it's not, it's not a universal consensus everywhere that you can't make the, the sounds of referring to that word when you're talking about, you know, if I were to say the N-word is the worst word in the world and no, it should never be used in hate against anyone because it's a horrendous thing to say to somebody. But if I were to actually say the word in that sentence, I don't think it's, I don't think it's entirely clear to everybody even now that that would be uh, an unforgivable offence or something that I should be, be punished for. There's clearly a very noisy cohort of people who think that. But the idea that a, that a, a New York Times journalist talking to a, a younger student on a trip to South America in whenever it was in the 20 teens should have been aware, I mean, should have been punished for treating that person like a grown up 
and just using words in the English language when you're talking about those words and just trying to clarify something that happened, not in hate, not in the spirit of animosity, not in the spirit of racism, that that totemic mouth sound you know, requires him to be punished. I, I don't even think I would grant that. Yes. I mean, in describing where the public is or where even the section of the public that's in charge of putting out mouth sounds and visual representations thereof. Yeah, I don't know that there is absolute agreement or even close. There's probably a a wide debate. In fact, we saw that there was a debate here in America when a couple of weeks ago, an old clip of Joe Biden from his time in the Senate surfaced where he, he literally is mouthing the word. And the fact check, the Reuters fact check, it was actually a recycled fact check because people tried to smear him with this in the past, is that no, 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 this is all taken out of context. That's Joe Biden quoting from someone who was using racist invective in term, um, and he used that as a justification for a vote that he was giving on the Senate floor, how bad this racist invective was. So there's Reuters saying, no, 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 he's not saying the word for any reason other than to um, tell the audience what the full uh, flavor of the quote was, which is, I suppose, what you could say, what uh, what Donald McNeil did, what I, in fact, uh, in 2019, the exact time that McNeil was getting in trouble or not getting in trouble, but would lay the groundwork for getting in trouble in Peru. I had a segment on my show where I was quoting a security guard from uh, Madison, Wisconsin. It was a pretty complex story, but I was more commenting on the CNN coverage of it, which is that their students of a school marched and said, there is uh, marched and said, you can't suspend this black security guard for saying, I am not this word. The student's point was that context matters. And CNN, in its coverage, seemed to agree with the students, but then bleeped out the word in confusing ways when the actual black security guard on their air said, and then I told him, I am not, and then they bleeped out the word. So on my show, I said the word without the bleep, but then thought better of it, took it off the air, but it did cause, it did cause strife, I found out later, it did cause strife within Slate that I would even uh, dare to entertain the idea that the uh, that an exact quote should be given it i knew it wasn't Mm. against policy i just was thinking about you know how would my audience take it is it more distracting to use it or not to use it and you know i in consultation with my supervisor decided better not to use it i was happy with that decision i mean there's also people weren't I have a significant cohort of black American friends who find it infantilizing and like mollycoddling and sort of condescending to say as if like they're so fragile and so ignorant that they can't understand what the intention is or like, you know, they have to be covered in cotton wool and like protected from the existence of this historical legacy of slavery. Like, yeah. so it's not entirely Peel, clear even. The co- yeah, the comedians Kim Peel wrote an essay to that effect for Time Magazine in 2014. I don't know if they'd... I don't know what they think about it today, and I don't know. I think they'd not write that today. Um, I just think the more um, au courant trend is under no circumstances should it oh, be Oh, yeah, said. and it's not just au courant. It's viciously hostile, and, you know, it's, it's, it's flaming torches and pitchforks, as you well know. So, I mean, I'm, I'm so relieved. When I first joined HuffPost Live in 2012 when that was launching – uh, one of the first segments that I wanted to do was because it's my I suppose my beat was like, what the hell is going on with this America thing that you guys have over here? And I would sort of play the like curious outsider. 
not dissimilar to your constantly perplexed persona of uh, the person who's taking a contrarian opinion to things. And uh, one of the segments was about the N- the phrase, the N-word, which in 2012 uh, was in use, I suppose, in a minimal way. I mean, it was around, but I think most people outside of elite circles in America, like most people outside of America wouldn't have known what I was talking about if I said the N-word. Like they, would, mm. they wouldn't, they just wouldn't, they, you'd get blank stares. Like, are you talking about the word that I think you're talking about? In which case, why aren't you just talk saying it? Um, and I wanted to do a segment in which we talked about it and debated it, but we didn't constantly fall back on using that babyish phrase, the N-word. And uh, thank God my producer at the, the time uh, Mitch pulled me aside and said, just think about the possibility of someone doing a mashup of you saying that word and just putting it back to back to back to back to try and trying to take it out of context and trying to, you know, like, you know, paint the wrong picture picture of you. I think you should do the segment without saying the word. And so I took his advice and, but it wasn't through any great virtue of mine. It wasn't because I, I think that it would have been wrong to have uttered those mouth sounds instead of saying the phrase, the N-word, he was just more keenly aware than I was, having just moved to, well, you know, into that sort of cultural circle in the United States. He was more keenly right. aware of the nefarious ways in which one cohort of people would use their beliefs as a way to bludgeon and destroy other people, whereas the people, the, the black American friends who I have who think that it's okay don't choose to go out of their way to demean little and you know crucify people who disagree with them so it's a it's a tactical thing as much as anything right and for the people who don't go out of their way to demean and belittle and maybe even more than don't go out of their way who really really hold it as a virtuous behavior that they'd really like to operate in the world by causing the least amount of unpleasantness to everyone but maybe you know marginalized communities who've had to experience a lot of shall we say unpleasantness from the past what these people want to do is to figure out what the current mores are and adjust to them and fit to them and i think to some extent you know as you told that anecdote, it seemed like you did it out of uh, conscious self-defense, right? I don't want to give anyone else ammunition. Um, and I, I, But I also would think, Josh, that there's part of it if, you know, if people really were to be offended, that's not your intention and it uh, would get in the way of your overall message. So if the yeah, general... But I find, but I find no. it, I found it hard then and I find it hard now not to agree with John McWhorter that there is no offense there, that the offense is, is performative. Like that but if maybe people there take are some offense, then it but is do offense. they? Well, but do some they do. actually? I mean, well, McWhorter thinks that that you know, McWhorter claims that there that we have we have built up a culture of encouraging people to feign or you know interpret and see perceive offense in areas where there is no actual offense. There is no genuine. Uh, like there's no there's no chance that the person actually thinks that they are being attacked, put it that way. So you can take offense in the same way that some people might take offense if they see a picture of a nude person. Right. But that doesn't mean that we punish people for, you know, p- producing portraits, publishing portraits of nude people. It just means that we we understand that, that, that some people will be sort of irrationally offended by some things. But I mean, I suppose I can't, you're right, I can't tell people that they're not being offended if they claim to be offended. But at some point, McWhorter would say that the offense is disingenuous. 
But I, okay, let's just use a couple examples. What is the offense of one of our five fingers when shown alone is said to cause offense? I can make a similar argument. You're only pretending to take offense. But given how people were raised and what they were taught and what it always meant to people, I think people genuinely take offense, as random and bizarre as it may be, that that one finger is an offensive action. And well, maybe hang on, I don't if, even, I do, yeah. if I give you the finger, then you can take offense. But if I were, yeah. to, if I were telling a story and I said, you know, there was this this guy who got fired when all he'd done was do this to a colleague and I pointed my finger at the at the window just to show that, then the idea that someone would be really, really deeply offended by that story is implausible to me. Mm. Well, I think that there are a large cohort of people who maybe are in their early 20s and have just graduated a college experience where they were told, you know, this is absolutely offensive and should not be allowed. And maybe they've never questioned if it is offensive or isn't offensive. They just know uh, there is no shortage of explanations as to why it's extremely offensive. You know, things like there, this word isn't for everyone. This word is for us. Why must uh, white people use this word? It's one word. And while the arguments might be strong or not strong, I do think that there are a lot of people who've heard arguments and arguments like them for their whole lives and were taught in places where they go to learn ethics and how the world works. They were told that this is the ethical thing. So why wouldn't they emerge into society fully believing it's the ethical thing and right, not just right. pretending it is? So maybe what maybe a clearer way of saying it is that they, they know that it's a taboo. Like yeah, they, it is. Uh, right. You know, whether it's or not a... they're offended per se, whether or not they're actually shocked and, you know, they're, they're hurt, whether or not it feels like you're dredging up 400 years of slavery and Jim Crow and sticking it into their heart uh, the same way that you would be if you actually use the word in aggression. Maybe that's sort of the wrong question. And the question is just like, you know, they're aware that there's a taboo that they've been taught and you're breaching the taboo, just the way some old tribal society has a taboo against saying the name of a dead pharaoh or emperor or something. You don't say that name. It's a, it's, it's, it's just what we've all agreed not to do. And that brings us to the consensus component of your firing from Slate, which I want to get back into, which is after the after you were fired, I saw someone I wasn't went fired. viral. I should I should Sorry. clarify. Sorry. We mutually agreed to part ways. <laughs> after you mutually agreed to part ways, we uh, I saw see a, more a, words rather than fewer. We're just yeah, trying always. to right always. trying to take up all two hundred eighty characters of life. <laughs> That's right. I saw a I saw a and I can't remember who it was. It was a, a black American guy who was tweeting against you, saying like, "Enough already! Like, can't we just?" I'm just sick and tired of of hearing white people try to rationalize why they get to say that word. Like, you don't get to say that word. That's the rule. And I saw that and I thought, you know what? If that is the rule, I'm actually kind of fine with us all agreeing on that rule. What I'm not fine with is us pretending that that was the rule everywhere up until right now. Like, that was not the rule a few years ago. And... So if we want to set rules, then let's all set rules and we can all get on the same page. And then we can say that if you say the sounds bobbledygook or if you say the word Auschwitz or, if you know, whatever else you might be, or if you say the word Stonewall hate crimes, then some particular cohort of society is going to either feign or genuinely feel outrage. You've breached the taboo. That person gets fired. If that's the rule, great. Let's all sign up. Let's all agree on the rules. We've all been informed. That's that. That's not what was happening. 
That's not what was happening. That wasn't the rule at the time. We didn't know that. We didn't know that it was unacceptable for Mike Pesca to go on a slate on a on a Slack channel and say, I don't think that a great journalist should be fired for having said the N-word. Like that wasn't the obviously it wasn't the rule because no one would be so much of a fuckwit as you would have had to be to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Like let's take a rule that we all know is the rule cannibalism. <laughs> would I be would I say, look, this guy was an active cannibal, but I think that, you know, the New York Times should excuse that. Well, so first anyway, of all, what it's yeah. obviously true that it is contended though. Like you can't just whistle past is it is it a source of contention? Let's all agree it's not a source of contention. Well, we haven't all agreed that, to that, quite obviously. And let me also point out with that argument, like let's say I was uh, with you saying, okay, let's all agree it's the rule. Even if we do, your point is that you can't retroactively uh, apply right, an agreement apply that we have now then. But my That's point right. was that I don't think you could even, well, I don't know if it's my point, but I would just point out that even if we all agree that it is or was the rule, we didn't also agree, did we, that there is to be no discussion of if it is the rule. Let's say we get to the point where we agree it's the rule. It probably is the case that we'd have gotten to the point because we engage in discussion about it. Right. Which is all, which is what I was doing, discussing right. it. Why would the Slack channel even exist if there wasn't <laughs> some dispute about this question? And sh- shall we just take a, a moment to, to wander off into the, into the thicket and into the daisies and do all of the, th- all of the throat clearing and say uh, that it's bad to have your limbs ripped off by a shark and uh, that, you know, the, that Josh is a privileged person who doesn't know the exact price of milk. Uh, because uh, do you want to tell me what the objection to this conversation that we're having right now will be, Mike? Well, first of all, I can object to the last two sentences. Josh, this isn't milk. This isn't hypothetical sharks. We're talking about real stuff here. Right. We're but, talking about well, stuff worse than being eaten by a shark. Yeah, yeah. We're just talking <laughs> well, about words. Me. We're talking about words. <laughs> yeah. So what's the objection that uh, that people are going to have to this? I don't know. It could be. At this point, my threat matrix is so overwhelmed. You tell me. Oh, I mean, well, I mean, it's the, t- t- of course, two white people, oh, two you know, white of course, it's, of course, it's white privilege that two white males would be, you know, talking about the words that they can and can't use. Whereas the voice of people of color in this conversation, uh, it's very convenient for white people to try to find excuses as to why they continue, can continue upholding white supremacy and, uh, you know, uh, lauding their privilege over people of color, just as they and their forefathers have done for uh, centuries. Yeah. Um, so let's, uh, you know, just park that. I, I accept that that is an opinion that some people will have. I don't think that all people of color are one gigantic mindless blob who just think exactly the same way and aren't capable of hearing articulate, uh, you know, thoughtful wrestle wrestling wrestling matches with various ideas. I have many, many friends, any of whom I could invite on this show and have and will continue to talk to from Coleman Hughes to Camille Foster to John McWhorter uh, to Glenn Lowry. And they will all have an opinion that is probably more strident uh, away from the consensus Black American sort of uh, Black Lives Matter consensus than the one that you and I are articulating, Mike. But to 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 only have these conversations when I'm talking to them is to engage in a kind of reductionistic, patronizing, condescending, white supremacist, I would say much more white supremacist than the points that we're making here, attitude towards people of color. Like, I don't, I'm not going to enlist my token black friend to come on and say the things that I want them to say. Uh, everyone is a 
is a grown up in this conversation and you and I are entitled to have opinions about the society we live in. We have standing in this society. We all have a stake in this society. We all have a stake in the future of this culture, not devouring itself and eating itself alive. So that is my response to the inevitable backlash that will come as a result of this episode. All right. Yeah. And what, I, gone and and what I'd like bullshit. to say. If well, if I can say yeah, as please. you know, my statement. People accuse me of this of this being a hill to die on. You asked these questions, and I asked answered, and I'm happy to do so to get to an understanding of, in general, what I think about illiberalism, censoriousness, the prices of that, but also even more globally, how to craft good opinions and how places like Opinion Magazine should go about, you know, testing and and stress testing their opinions about creating better opinions. This of all the issues in the world, this is a very small portion of my of of my consciousness. It's not, I, you know, I have a show. I talk about issues for more than a half hour a day. I've talked about this one or two times over seven years on the show. In general, I am. I do default to more speech instead of less. That I am very. Um, I am very engaged in the issues of people trying to shut down speech in any way, which includes, in fact, probably the biggest threat to speech now are people banning books. It's not the anti-CRT. It is the anti-CRT as opposed to the CRT impulse. But I just wanted to say that, that this is not an issue that you did ask. I will answer. This is far from my number one or number 1,000th issue, this one word. No, I feel bad. I feel bad for you in a sense that you have been dragooned into this because you were just a victim of a wave of cancel culture, and in a way that was that you became a sort of a, a totem of a problem. So you find yourself in a position of having to talk about this stupid issue, which is really neither here nor there, and which is not something that you should, you do or should care care about terribly much. Um, other than the extent to which it's one example of a way in which our culture is being deranged by people taking each other out of context and and punishing each other for transgressions that either shouldn't be transgressions or certainly shouldn't be, you know, job and career killing transgressions. So what happens, uh, let's put a pin in this very quickly, and then we can Mm. move on to more interesting conversations about the culture wars, but just to give people a sense. So you're you're having this conversation in a Slack channel, you're saying like, I'm not sure a person should be fired for just for saying the word if it's not said in, in, in hate. And then what happens? Well, the Slack channel is shut down. People are upset. The uh, management then of Slate mm, solicits opinions, launches an investigation. The investigation asks me about dozens of opinions I've shared over the years on my podcast, the gist opinions. Like, I don't think that the they, them pronouns will replace he and she. I wasn't making a should argument. I was just predicting what the future may hold. You know, I was asked to answer for that opinion. I was asked to answer for very light jokes I made that did not, that I think were not inherently offensive. I I uh, described one of my former uh, supervisors as engaging in bear-like behavior of rubbing himself and urinating on a tree. In the, <laughs> that, now, that guy's not at Slate. I talked to him and I said, did you know about this? And he was like, no, I don't. That, that was funny. It was stupid. So, you know, you do an investigation. You, I suppose, ask, answer for everything that you might have done wrong. And then the upshot of that investigation, I can say, uh, and I can say this because there were negotiations and non-disclosure agreements, but I can disclose that the investigation found that no rules were broken, no policies were violated. Um, yeah, and I knew that to be the case, even though... Um, 
Yeah, I just flat out knew that to be the case. So I wasn't that scared about what the investigation might find, although it's never pleasant to have an official investigation about all the opinions that you've held. But the further upshot beyond the investigation was Slate looked at the situation and I looked at the situation and we both said, you know, I, we don't want you working here and you don't want to work here. And it would just be better for everyone if you took your show which they, you know, admitted in, admitted, I shouldn't say that, which they describe in the press release, you know, pretty generously as saying they're proud of the show that I've put together in the seven years that I was with Slate. Um, and so I took it independent with, uh, that's how, that's what, there was disentanglement, legal disentanglements involved, but I now have an independent show beyond uh, the reach of anyone except me and my listeners. And this was at a moment, I mean, the reason why this sort of shocked everybody, I think, was... It felt like the last in a string of, I'm not going to say firings, but uh, conscious decouplings of uh, people whose transgressions were becoming smaller and smaller and smaller and more and more incidental, such that, I mean, if, you know, if anyone has not said something that could potentially rub a co-worker slightly the wrong way over the course of their career, then I would argue that they're just not very interesting and they're not really thoughtful and they're not actually interested in challenging and pushing back and and trying to flesh out what is true. They're just being compliant sheep. And yours, I mean, there was, I guess, Barry Weiss was kind of hounded out of the times. Uh, you know, Andrew Sullivan, as I mentioned, had to leave the... Uh, uh, had to leave the Atlantic. Uh, Matt Taibbi left Rolling Stone. Uh, Jesse Single. Well, has Jesse ever been anywhere? I don't know. But there was, and there were, you know, a number, a number of kind of roiling controversy, controversies at mainstream uh, journalistic institutions, where the racial reckoning, I suppose, that had been uh, ignited over the northern summer of 2020 during the pandemics with Black Lives Matter and the the anti Trump protests, uh, you know, what did you make of the way that that all came to a head and how did you see your experience as fitting into a bigger cultural trend? You mean the ritualistic casting out of apostates, that? (laughs) (laughs) You could put it that way. (laughs) How much throat clearing do we need to do before we start talking about apostates and religion? Shall we? uh, I thought thought at least a few of the... I thought at least a few of these outlets were the kind of outlets that would stand athwart that sort of thing. You know, when I read New York Magazine, I like the fact that Jonathan Chait is there pretty much disagreeing with 90% of what's written in New York Magazine. Mm. But and that's his beat. Ma- and we should also cl- clarify for people, sorry to interrupt, that was your beat. I mean, your whole thing since day one has been very slight pitchy, meaning very kind of I'm taking the the unexpected angle on this thing. I'm not, I'm going to be the person who is who is not of my cohort and who is encouraging people to think in different ways. Yeah, and I you know I get I guess accused of being a contrarian. It just comes quite naturally to me, and I can list a hundred ways that I'm not a contrarian. From please take your please take your vaccine to Steph Curry's an excellent three point shooter. I mean, I'm mostly not a contrarian. I cross at the light, you know. I put leaded uh, unleaded gasoline in the car, things like this. But but 
Um, it was always, I always loved the organizations that had a robust variety of opinion, uh, just as the news consume, as a news consumer, I like the fact that I didn't have to, you know, curate my own experience to get the differing opinions that, uh, sustain me as a citizen and a democracy. So the fact that New York Magazine had Chait and had Andrew Sullivan, but also had Rebecca Traister, great, I love that, until there came a time, I suppose, just going by what was reported, that Sullivan's existence there at New York Magazine so upset other people at New York Magazine. I consider that, you know, you could document, oh, here are things he did in the office and the plates he threw at people and the, you know, terrible places that he chose to defecate. Uh, None of that seemed to come to light. It was just that his opinions seemed not to be in the fitting with the general uh, thrust of the magazine. I put Matt Iglesias and Vox in the same category. I think Matt decided no one kicked him i don't know if it what really happened it didn't seem like he he is an owner of vox didn't seem like anyone kicked him out of vox but the fact that there could be matt and ezra together with herman lopez made vox more exciting and once the inglacia side of things gets stripped away from vox vox becomes just a less vital place so Mm. this is all the examples that you gave were people who made generally left to center left outlets a bit more exciting and there there are some you know when the uh when the national review when they first went when they first took on trump and they had a greater variety of voices i think crystal didn't immediately go to the dispatch that was a a very exciting time for national review if you want to talk about National View is Republican and conservative, but they're more exciting when they're not doctrinaire. I think all these Mm. places are so much better when they're not doctrinaire. And there is a trend or was a trend, and we're living in the trend of the insistence on more and more doctrine, more of the same ideology. The Mm. Substack trend is a counter trend to that. I think what we're doing, you and I and others are doing on podcasts is a counter trend. But there was a time when all these people could play in the same sandbox and, you know, no one had the veto power over that except maybe the editors or the audience. Yeah. Do you think there's more diverse voices now? I mean, it's interesting you mentioned Matt Iglesias and Ezra Klein because they created Vox, I think that's fair to say, right? And Matt has gone off on his own and now writes consistently insightful, really interesting, unusual, provocative things, you know, the kinds of articles where I read the headline and I'm like, oh, come on, you're just trolling. I don't, that's not going to be true. And then I hear his argument and I'm like, oh, maybe there should be a billion Americans or maybe there should be like, you know, this complete overhaul of this thing that I've never even thought about before. Whereas Ezra is now at the New York Times and I find him considerably more uh, straight laced and down the middle of the road. Uh, and, you know, I don't think anything that he says would ruffle any feathers at elite cocktail parties in, in Brooklyn. And his argument is occasionally that all of this is a storm in a teacup because there's actually greater diversity of opinion and greater diversity of voices now than there ever has been before. What's happening is that uh, privileged white males are seeing their privilege eroded. And so they're saying, oh, there are all kinds of things that I can't say anymore, which is just like in the 1950s, people saying, you can't even slap a woman on the ass anymore and call her toots and tell her to get you a cup of coffee. Uh, and that they, you know, people in the 50s saw that erosion of privilege as being, uh, you know, a- an attack on them too. But that, you know, in in that era, a black trans woman 
wouldn't be able to have a seat at the table. And now she potentially could. It's still harder, but we're we're getting there where she's not going to get laughed out of the room. So there's actually a greater cacophony of voices. It's just not the cacophony that people like you and me want to hear. And so I I constantly sort of check myself with that reality check and make sure that I'm not blundering into that worldview. But how do you see that Ezra critique, if, if I'm characterizing it correctly? Well, I don't know. Well, first of all, Ezra, you're right. He does, I mean, his actual opinions that he holds are within the the Brooklyn cocktail or the San Francisco cocktail circuit, I guess, that he lives in. But he genuinely likes to engage with, I just heard his podcast where he talked with a, uh, I guess, a flat out, straight, straight up and down uh, libertarian from George Mason University. And it was a very productive conversation, the kind of which would not be had at a number of these other institutions. I put the New York Times a little bit to the side. They clearly still want to have a robust conversation where they run an op-ed saying that, um, Jail reform is a bad idea, and or jail and bail reform is a bad idea, and another op-ed that says it's good, and they could get the best voices in America to contribute to that. But I'm talking about all the other places that are, you know, one level under the New York Times, just in terms of reach and influence. And most I'll just, of them I'll just have, quickly make the note, yeah. Mike, that around the time that you had your kerfuffle with Slate, the New York Times also fired their their opinion page editor for daring to publish an article by a sitting senator of the United States saying that the the protests, the Black Lives Matter protests should be uh, suppressed using military force. Yes, they were probably not fired, but consciously decoupled. Although, you know, that's a complicated story because I thought, well, if Tom Cotton runs to write a stupid op-ed, he is Tom Cotton and we could all read the op-ed and think that it is a bad policy he is advocating. So that's what you want an op-ed page to do. The complication is, you know, we just had a big trial with Sarah Palin who sued the Times for defamation and lost. But in that trial, the very same um, editor of the editorial page did not come off, did not cover himself in glory with his inattention to detail in, if not legally defaming, then spreading untruths about Sarah Palin. So that said, back to Ezra. First of all, I think a lot of those people who three years ago said, oh, come on, there's more voices than ever. I talked to a lot of these people and today they say, no, you're actually right. There has been a, there has been a culling of the unusual opinion. There There is definitely a trend away from let us have the full cacophony under one roof. And the other thing is, even though, yeah, there are voices out there and a few of them like Taibbi and Iglesias have really big prominent substacks uh, and the fact that, and Barry Weiss seems to be doing well, the fact that she was with the New York Times is what made Barry Weiss. And the fact that these people had big followings to begin with, they were able to take their followings with them. Well, the next generation or even the same generation, but just at one level lower than to be able to be self-sufficient on a substack, they really need an ethic of let us disagree productively. And that ethic... I do think the 40, 50, 60-year-old managers of op-ed pages more or less agree with the ethic. I think the 30 and 20-year-old future managers do not. I think we're going to see that come. There might be a market correction, but I think we are seeing the effects of that. And just because there are superstars who are outside the system and outside the uh, veil of acceptability that are doing well doesn't mean that we have a healthy and robust system where our biggest institutions are embracing this idea of 
productive disagreement. Our biggest institutions are not embracing the idea. Of course, I want to blame so much of Republican media as well. Fox News does not do that. Um, the Dispatch and the Bulwark are the equivalents of uh, of of Inglesias and Taibbi on the right. They're apostates who had to set up their own shop to uh, in order to be heard. That's not a good. It's not a good development that this is the only way for all these voices to really get a hearing from your average citizen who wants to be engaged but really can't spend time seeking out which half dozen substacks or podcasts he can cultivate to create a collection that gives him what one or two op-ed pages used to in the past. Mm. And I mean, then part of the concern is also that if you do cultivate that substack of independent voices who aren't just towing exactly the same kind of narrative that you're going to hear either in the conservative media or in the left-wing media, but are going to throw interesting things at you. There's a a sort of a self-selection bias going on in those independent uh, outlets and among those independent dissenting podcasters and bloggers that can drive them off the rails too. I mean, we've seen the derangement of some people who I previously respected a lot a few years ago. I don't know if it's because of the pandemic. I don't know if it's because of the just the cultural, uh, the roiling cultural crisis of being captivated, ca- captured in your own home and doing nothing but Zoom meetings and surfing Twitter all day. But, uh, you know, I don't think I need to name the people who five years ago we thought of as being fiercely independent thinkers who are now slightly conspiratorial uh, purveyors of misinformation and and bullshit, and there's a sort of an audience capture going on where it, the red meat to the, the to their followers becomes more and more enticing, and they get kind of steered into ever more conspiratorial thinking. And now they're talking about, you know, coronavirus being a a, a world plot to install a world government and uh, issue us all with social credit vaccine passports that are going to enslave us, and that that was the point of the Wuhan lab concocting the virus all along. And I'm like, wow, five years ago, you were an independent thinker. I don't know if this is independent, but it's certainly batshit crazy. Right. One of the, first of all, it wasn't a defect of the idea of an op-ed page or a magazine that had a number of voices. It wasn't a defect that the preferences and whims of the audience were one or two levels removed from the people doing the writing. Uh, The people doing the writing to some extent, should come out with their opinions, popularity of the opinion be damned. But with Substack, it's exactly married to what the audience wants. So it's very hard, and this is where my podcast, The Gist, has the, it's a very bad market position in that what I do frequently is tell the audience what they don't want to hear. There is no way to make millions of dollars when you consistently tell people what they don't want to hear. But I think of, here's a great example. I don't know if he's as celebrated. In Chicago, he's well-known, but I don't know if he's as celebrated or uh, a case as some of these other guys we're ta- or women we're talking about. And I also don't know, I don't think that he was, uh, Eric Zorn is who I'm talking about, a columnist for the Chicago Tribune. And he wasn't exactly chased out for his opinions, but it became clear that his opinions caused a lot of trouble at his organization. Plus, the Chicago Tribune was bought by, you know, a terribly rapacious um, company that stripped it for parts. But Eric, in this is typical editorial of him, there was a shooting of a 13-year-old, a kid named Adam Toledo, I say kid, and there was a question of, you know, did he have a gun? Did he flash the gun? He did have a gun, but dropped it before he was shot. His people, activists, were saying, you know, Adam Toledo is an angel. He's 13. He's just an innocent. 
Um, Zorn does a column saying just because the kid is 13, not making any judgments on this actual kid or these actual cases, it is a faulty argument to put forward that 13-year-olds are purely angelic and cannot, in fact, kill a cop. He lists a half dozen examples where someone of 13 years of age shot at a cop or attempted to kill a cop or were quite dangerous to themselves or other people. Well, the, the, the blowback that he got from those within his organization um, and others in the world of journalism who just were very quick to call him racist, it was enormous. Zorn withstood that. The editors at the time did not discipline him, but it was quite clear that this is not the sort of argumentation that you engage in if you want to keep your job as a columnist. And that's what we want the op-ed page to have. We want a variety of voices where they even say the thing that most of the public will disagree with, but maybe it makes you think. I think that's what makes an op-ed page vital. I think the idea of the op-ed page as a singular institution is really important to society. And I do think if what we have to do is kind of assemble our own op-ed pages by a podcast here, a Substack there, the regular op-ed page here. It's just not as good as it once was when there were people putting this together um, for the for the news consumer to to peruse conveniently. The uh, you mentioned earlier, Mike, that the the people who are currently running these institutions who are in their their fifties, largely uh, or or older. Are, they came up with an idea about small l liberalism, which which revered free speech and and sort of held the free exchange of ideas and even pushing you know pushing people's buttons a little bit as being part of the point of their job. And if, as you suggest, people in their twenties and thirties have been inculcated with uh, a worldview that is not predominantly motivated by uh, the messy exchange of complicated, provocative ideas, but rather by uh, what you might call generously uh, a mission towards greater justice, a mission towards uh, uh, ironing out or excluding points of view that are uh, that are bigoted, that are representatives of the white supremacist patriarchal power structures, and making sure that all of the all all content and all behaviour conforms to um, a, a vision of of justice and equality for minorities. If that's the worldview, then what happens to the likes of you and the future yous when those people are running all institutions? Well, a couple things. One, and what's going on with the high profile cases is they're more successful than the old institutions. I mean, there are old institutions who are dying, I think, because they got away from this idea. I think that it is an exciting idea, and it does the idea of uh, a, plura- a number of voices often disagreeing with things. Um, I think the other idea of similar voices all saying the same things, it's just going to appeal to the public less and sell less. And what might happen is that many of these institutions pivot to unpopularity, and they cease to exist or are forced to change. Um I would think in the midterm elections, um, Democrats are going to get shellacked. There's going to be a big argument about to what extent should we blame how much uh, being a Democrat is associated with the kind of progressivism that you were describing in your question. You know, the brand is toxic is a headline that played in a lot of uh, newspapers in the United States from an AP story. The Democratic brand is toxic. How much is that toxicity based on things that Democrats or 
people, you know, elite uh, left-leaning people say? How much is it, you know, conservatives smearing all Democrats is believing what those elite left-leaning people say? But I do think that if more and more elite left-leaning people only voice the opinions of elite left-leaning people, they're not going to be such robust institutions in the future. Mike, I think that's a that's a pretty good place to uh, to to leave that with either a depressing or optimistic uh, worldview of the future. That I, I'm just trying to think: are there any shark uh, stories that you want to leave us with before we uh, before we go either shark related, bread related, or lactation related? I, I think stories? I think in doing so, in traipsing in so frivolous, frivolously traipsing in these fields, it would just expose my uh, my unfinned, defined privilege. <laughs> My, you know, a lot of people have lactose intolerance and tolerance, and that's I wouldn't want to show myself as being one of those people. No, that's true. You are not intolerant to the lactose intolerant. That's what we love about you, Mark Pesca. Thank, thank you for doing the show. Good to talk to you. You're quite welcome. To Uncomfortable Conversations is produced by Stefan Postuma. Follow me, Josh Zepps, on Twitter and Instagram for all the latest. May your day be fruitful, your mind humble, your enemies generous, and your conversations perfectly, sparklingly, delectably uncomfortable.